Thanks for that round of applause for me coming up to preach today. If we could make this a part of our weekly service, that would be amazing. Hey, you have on your chairs um, not a small thing. Uh, some effort went into producing this. So I would encourage you, if you haven't already taken the time to read through it, and maybe you won't take the time to do that in the middle of our sermon today, but that you'd take it with you because... Uh, This spells out some very specific steps about uh, where we're going as a church. Um, Also, uh, gives you some background here on the eighth birthday of our church of uh, the the underpinnings, why we do what we do. Uh, It's not, you know, haphazardly planned. We haven't been flying by the seat of our pants. Uh, We have a very specific uh, mission and a very specific mission plan and uh, the Lord has been very faithful to give us flexibility as we've had to adapt uh, our methodology and when we get there and how we get there. Um, but at the same time, things like the Crawfords leaving for Russia is something we've been dreaming about from day one. Uh, this is the kind of church we want to be in. So that's detailed, and I would want you to be fully aware and fully invested in in what we're hoping to see the Lord do together as a mission. We refer to PRISM as a mission church, uh, at least we did at the beginning, because in an ecclesiastical sense, that's what a church plant is. It is a mission, and the reason it's distinguished between that and what theologians might call a particular church is because a mission church is sent out with a single elder on the mission of developing a church that will be governed biblically, as the scriptures tell us to, by a plurality of elders. And then once you get these elders, you are a particular local church. Well, we are now a particular local church. But when you think about churches, the language associated with them oftentimes uh, makes you think a lot about a rocket launch, because they talk about the church launch, you know, and you talk about the things you need to do to prepare for the launch, and then you have a launch party, and you do all these, these things. And I've actually been to a launch before, and I don't know if you have. I was in high school when I got to see the space shuttle launch just from the beach uh, just south of Cape Canaveral, and uh, it's a pretty exciting thing. It's a, it's a really amazing sight of the power uh, the strength of all that rocket fuel going off to push something uh, into the air. Uh, this is all that goes into getting a church ready to go. You're, there's lots of preparation. And, and so today we, we celebrate that after all of that, uh, eight years later, God has been exceedingly faithful to our church. We launched with a very small group of people. And uh, in fact, there are a few of those people here today. If you were here during year one, and for that matter, uh, I would say if you, uh, for clarification's sake, if you actually worshiped with us uh, at, on Sunday night on the building we rented across from Pasadena City College, do me a favor, raise your hand. All right, so there are like a few people here. So they've hung around. Thank you, by the way, for uh, hanging around. There were others that were there that didn't hang around. Some have moved on to other cities and other churches. But the Lord has, through a consistent group of people who said, you know, we want to be a gospel-centered church, uh, brought us to this place where 
uh, we are actually now beyond the launch phase, and if you want to continue with the metaphor, we're into orbit, and we're using God's uh, word and counsel and prayer to, to use to effectively navigate where we're going as a mission. Uh, I'm excited because uh, in just a little while, on the 12th of October, we begin the launch of the new movie, First Man. I love space movies. Uh, I have watched uh, the, uh, the Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks more times than I can count. Even though I've seen it, even though I have it on DVD, when it comes on TBS, I still watch it with the commercials. It's one of those kinds of movies. Um, I, I've seen uh, the Mars movies, the, the, the one with well, Matt Damon. I always forget the name of it when it's time to actually remember that. But you, you, I've seen that more times than I can remember. I love these movies. And so First Man is coming out with some uh, acclaim that this is going to be a terrific movie about Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. There has already been some blowback, uh, and that would be that the second man to walk on the moon, Buzz Aldrin, is a little upset that the movie trimmed from its body. Uh, the, the editors took out the scene of he and Neil Armstrong planting the American flag. And of course, it's been spun towards this notion of it's an anti-American film and it's globalist and whatever. I tend to believe, because I know a little something about broken human nature, because I am one, uh, that that Neil has, I mean, that uh, Buzz has been suffering uh, uh, from a lifetime of second man syndrome. Uh, if the movie's called First Man, uh, it's because it's focusing on Neil Armstrong. And if Buzz is anything like me at all, uh, I would say that has had to at times eat at him. That people remember that he was the second man to walk on the moon. And in some documentaries, there was actually a moment of tension where he tried to become, uh, in flight, the first guy to walk on the moon, and they had to correct them from mission control to make that clear. Um, as you can see from the picture in your bulletin, uh, there is a picture of yours truly and Buzz Aldrin. I sat in front of him on a flight back in 2009. And he was on Dancing with the Stars, and so I obnoxiously walked up to him and said, hey, do you mind if we get a picture before we get off the plane? A friend of mine, after seeing this picture, asked me, did he actually fly the plane? And I said, no, but ironically, he was the second person off the plane. So <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Western culture is obsessed with comparing ourselves with others. Uh, we have a phrase for it. It's called keeping up with the Joneses. Human nature loves the glory of being admired by the world much more than the notion that we would live for the honor and admiration of God Almighty. C.S. Lewis said that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Uh, once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. I came to Pasadena 10 years ago with the hopes of ministry success. My plan was a straight line to accomplishing something I envisioned, much like the cartoon you see 
on your scripture reading page. Uh, But God has different plans. My path was easy and smooth. His plans included the humbling of me and the exposure of my lifelong obsession with the praise of other humans. But in experiencing rejection and painful failure and being on the brink of a nervous breakdown, my initial failures in ministry here in California were used by God to show me something really important about myself. And that is that I had spent all of my life living for the glory of human praise. As early as I can remember in life, I would walk into a room, and I'm talking elementary, middle school, high school, and I would size up, okay, who's the most important in the room, and where do I fit in the pecking order? I don't know why. I'm sure there's a therapist in the house that can help me dig into the, uh, and I've seen therapists a couple times about this very thing. There's something that was fractured in me as a child that made me compulsively seek approval and the popularity of the crowd. And unfortunately, when I got into ministry, it was fairly easy to do that with the ministry call, especially in America. We live in a world where we celebrate mega ministers. And so if you're a young guy who thinks God's calling him into ministry and you've got issues of approval and need of others' attention and, and wanting to be important compared to others... It's very easy in our culture to put two and two together and go, guy up front is important. I'm going to be that guy. But Jesus calls us to a very different lifestyle. He says, if you're going to be great, you're going to be the servant of all. Remarkable how many ministers got that screwed up in their head as they lead churches. And I was one of them. The good news is, that God uses even our poorly motivated efforts and painful failures to bring about great things in our hearts. The Lord began in 2009 and 2010 a healing process in me that continues to this day. He also made it clear that if I was going to lead and be a part of a team of people starting a church here in Pasadena, it would be done from a place of brokenness and not perceived human greatness. Prism Church was born and launched in the cauldron of pain with the fuel of humility born of nothing but the grace of God that we have to offer each other and our culture. And your pastor is the lead broken guy in the gang. I take great comfort from the words that Paul shared with a church planter named Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. He said, as we sang this morning, this saying is trustworthy and true. It's deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason in me, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me translate this into uh, our vernacular. God uses broken people so that you would look at them and say, if God can use them, He can use anyone. This 
was my mandate. People have from time to time asked me, I just, I, uh, you know, you, you just seem to lay it all out there. How are you so transparent? Well, you're presuming you know everything, first of all. But secondly, I would say confidence in God's love that is growing in me. It certainly hasn't been achieved. But there's a very clear declaration in Scripture and a very clear mandate for our church that we are not to try to appeal to our culture by virtue of how slick and fancy and big and huge and successful we are and then say, would you like to be like us? But instead to be people who say, we're broken. And we have, by God's grace, understood the gospel and comprehended his love. And now we invite you to be a part of that with us. PRISM's mission in Pasadena is to proclaim that we are sinful and we must be saved by God and that Jesus has come to do that. Our text in John 12 that you can read along with me in your scripture says there is a judge for those who reject Jesus and don't accept his word, John 12, 48. And his words really are just the words of the Father, John 12, 49. And hence, Jesus says, whoever believes in him doesn't believe in him only, but the one who sent him. That's John 12, 440, John 12, 44. See, it's to God be the glory, not a human being, not the Apostle Paul, and not the right reverend Chuck Ryer. It's God who wants to be seen in what we do. Now, beyond securing eternal life, which I want you to know, is no big deal. I mean, it's is no small thing. We believe that the gospel is also to penetrate deep down to bring real life and healing to our hearts, which is why we say we're a gospel-centered church. We talk about the gospel a lot. We talk about Jesus' saving act, and not, uh, act a lot, not because we couldn't talk about other things, but we don't think it's the starting point, and then you get on to the, applying the principles of God. We think that the gospel, the good news that God has reached out to us, restored us, is that which penetrates each and every area of our lives. Applying the gospel is seeing our desires for good things in this life take their rightful place in our soul, subsequent to our need, our ultimate need to know God, to be known by God, to be known and loved by God and valued by Him. And as God worked the miracle of faith in you, if you're a believer, so that you would be able to start taking your first steps as a Christian, His Spirit must continually revive us, which is why the first part of our mission statement is reviving believers, revived believers are the ones who go about doing the mission with the right attitude, the right heart, the right levels of humility. And on this eighth birthday of PRISM's mission launch, I want to look at chapter 12 of John through the PRISM, if you will, of the gospel's not only initial working in our lives, but its continuing work in our hearts. Uh, John is summarizing that Jesus has come to the end of his three-year mission He's about to die for the sins of the world. And at the conclusion of this, John wants to shed some light on the subject of spiritual blindness. You see, there are people that have seen Jesus do amazing things, and they still aren't willing to follow. So I have three thoughts 
fairly brief by comparison to usual, about spiritual blindness that we see in John 12. And the first is this spiritual blindness must be healed by God. It's nothing that we can do. And I read verses 39 through 41 of our text today. Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What Isaiah is talking about is the religious leaders and the religious authorities that were eventually going to be the ones that called for Jesus' death, that decreed Jesus' death, that supported Jesus' death. They needed to allow Jesus to be crucified for the sins of the world. They needed Jesus to do this. We needed Jesus to do this. So in order to be sure that Jesus would be offered as the Lamb of God in our place, God had to make sure that they didn't see him for who he was. He blinded the eyes for his purposes of people. Isaiah spoke of Jesus, and this was centuries before Jesus' arrival. And John says in verse 41 that Jesus was seen by Isaiah prophetically from a long way off. And so he spoke because he was able to actually see what the Messiah was going to have to do. This is the part of our mission that I am actually most excited about. See, it's revived believers who see God's glory that must speak of him. We're compelled to. If you and I are not obediently following Jesus, the problem is not that we just don't care and we need to grit our teeth and be more suffering servant-like or be more radical for Jesus and have crazy love for him. The problem is, is that we don't see the gospel. We don't comprehend it. I visited a while back with a friend who was part of a church where they were teaching the radical Christianity that we should all want and love and be a part of. And that sounds terrific, except that they got continuously frustrated as a pastoral staff and leadership team that their people just weren't obedient. They weren't living radically. What's the problem? And so what they did was they amped up the radical talk more. Like, be more committed. Grit your teeth. Don't you see? And they would guilt and pressure and, and do all they could to make people just feel like, you know, you're just, you're just not enough. You should be mourning about how awful you are. This was their approach to how they were going to spur people to love and good deeds. Literally, like the spur on a heel of a boot. We're going to stick it in you and see if we can get some movement on your part. So I said to this guy, I said, listen, I think the problem is, is your people don't comprehend the gospel. And he goes, oh, they understand the gospel just fine. And I said, no, you're saying understand. I'm saying comprehend. See, spiritual blindness is something that we can't manufacture. Or spirit, I'm sorry, the, the elimination of spiritual blindness is not something we can manufacture. We have to be healed by God. His Spirit has to help us comprehend. When we are at a place where we lack zeal for the Lord, we're called to call out to Him and say, Heal me. Help me comprehend what it is that you've done for me. Help me see this. Otherwise, you begin to tint towards a self-righteousness 
you begin to think that you are a better Christian than others. In this context, John is saying because the mob had to crucify him, God allowed them to continue in unbelief. He permitted Satan a free reign in blinding people. But the flip side of this is that when we do see and understand and turn to follow, the scriptures say this is where Jesus has worked in us. The emphasis in this passage, his healing, this is all born of the Spirit. It's God who needs to bring clarity to our minds and sight to our eyes. When I was in youth ministry, which was many moons ago now as I count backwards, one of the fun trips we got to take once, and this was a part of youth ministry, you just got to take trips all the time and call it work. Um, we, we went splunking, which is a fancy way of saying caving, and we got the little miner's helmets with the barely dim lights on the surface, and, and you get down into the belly of the earth, and it's dark, I mean really dark. We've been in, I've been in places in this cave area where there was no measurable light, and you see inside that vast darkness the value of even a flicker of light, light Low wattage light is blinding in the darkness. You and I, naturally speaking, are incapable of seeing. Our blindness is not something we can change. For believers, part of the reason we continuously make decisions that have bad repercussions for our lives is because we've done so in contradiction to Scripture. We've foolishly determined that we, by our instinct, can have a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. When the psalmist said it was his word that would provide that. We choose often as believers to be people who don't turn on the light of God's word, the light of the counsel of other believers, the light of time and prayer. We decide, oh, we're going to just do life our way. And then we wonder why we're hurting ourselves. We're stumbling around in the darkness. We have this verse on the back of our front sign, John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Spiritual blindness, it must be healed by God. It's nothing that we can do. Second thing about spiritual blindness we see in our passage today is it's prolonged by self-sufficiency. In verses 42 and 43, we get to the real meat of our subject today. Nevertheless, it says in John 12, 42, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Sound familiar? Well, we see in the middle of today's passage the apostles' assessment of why people might otherwise put two and two together and figure out who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, but not publicly confess him. These leaders saw the miracles. They consented intellectually to the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were unable to follow him for fear of losing the respect of our culture. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, everyone who acknowledges me before men I will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
One critical component of our mission as a church in reviving believers to reach friends and renew culture is our commitment to both understanding the gospel and comprehending the gospel. Uh, We understand Christianity intellectually, but many don't experience it, don't comprehend it emotionally. And on the one hand, the faith of some won't weather the tsunami of cultural backlash because it isn't built on the bedrock of God's Word. And on the other hand, some folks have never had enough of an experience with that which they say they understand to motivate them to love God and care about His mission. Understanding the what's and why's of the Christian faith are critical. Jesus talked about it in terms of building your house on the rock of His Word instead of the sands. When the winds of societal pressure will start characterizing your faith as uneducated or unenlightened or bigoted, you begin to find out whether or not your faith has the substance to hold on in the middle of all of that blowing. A person may say they believe in Jesus, but some folks, like I said, don't really comprehend. And you know they don't comprehend it because they're not really in love with following Jesus. Now, admittedly, following Jesus involves a lot of falling on your face. It isn't a perfect walk. It is a walk through a cave that has rocks that make you trip and fall if you decide, hey, today I'll do this on my own. No need to have the light of the Word or the light of His presence guide me. And then you fall on your face and you break your nose and you go, how did that happen? And we go, Jesus, I'm sorry. And He graciously turns around and picks you up and goes, let's dust you off, wipe you off here. Okay, ready to follow again? This is the Christian experience. It's not a life of perfection. It's a life of falling forward. But... We are called to be people who know why we are following Jesus. We are called to recommit ourselves daily to the narrow path of following Him, one that will bring life as His Word and His presence light this path. It's possible to say, I'm a Christian. In the case of these folks, they were very religious folks, but they didn't want to identify with Jesus They preferred to walk blindly in the world. And at the root of this blindness is a human pride that loves the glory of man more than the glory of God. In the same books, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he, he says this raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? His answer is, I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. Spiritual blindness is prolonged by our self-sufficiency. And comprehending the gospel is when a person who understands intellectually the faith gets clarity about the reality of what that means in terms of their value to God and His grace and how broken they are, but how loved they are, bigger than they can ever imagine, And then they decide, I'm going to not only humbly rely upon him for my eternal life, but I'm going to humbly rely upon him for how I feel about me. I'm no longer going to compare myself to other people and say, do I stack up against this folk or do I stack up against this group or where do I fit in the pecking order of my life? Spiritual blindness 
will keep you in a lifestyle of trying to make life work on your own, self-sufficiently. The third aspect of spiritual blindness that John's going to address in our text today is that spiritual blindness remains or requires a person to stay in spiritual darkness. That's what results. Spiritual blindness means that you're going to spend eternity out of the presence of God. The text says here in John 12, 46 and 48, I've come into the world, this is Jesus speaking, as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You say, Chuck, you're talking about eternal judgment. He says he doesn't come to judge the world. Well, this is akin to what Jesus said earlier in our study in John, in John 3. In John 3, verses 17 through 18, it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But then it goes on in the very next verse to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. In other words, we live in darkness. Jesus didn't come to bring darkness. Darkness is prevalent. We live in judgment. We stand in judgment. Humanly speaking, we are naturally there. We lack light. He's come to bring light. He doesn't need to bring darkness. It's already here. Jesus has said over and over again that he came to bring salvation. But salvation is elusive if you want to try to figure out life on your own. You're, you're on your own to try to piece together how it is that you could be acceptable to God, and it's not possible. Spiritual blindness results in eternal life without God. This is the nature of what the Bible calls spiritual death. It's separation from God. Darkness is merely the absence of light. It's the absence of the presence of the Lord in your life, and if you determine, hey, listen, I don't need your light, Jesus, you'll remain in darkness now, and the scriptures say you'll remain in darkness eternally. Uh, the accomplishments that Jesus has made on our behalf were made possible because God allowed our enemy to continue to blind the eyes of those who would crucify the Lord for us they were naturally blind and the spirit of god did not intervene to open their eyes and show them we are born spiritually blind now as a result of what jesus has done we are all presented with the offer to be healed the spirit must bring our sight to us he must heal us and it's also true that Jesus didn't come to condemn. And what he meant to say is that if you genuinely can believe by his grace that he's come to point you not only to eternal life in him, but to fullness of life by following him now, you can know this today. It's true for those of us who've professed a belief in Jesus and are mired in the cares and concerns of our world. We often are people who are, are just stuck. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 said that we're supposed to lay aside the things that hinder us and the sin that so easily entangles us. These are references to the challenge associated with just spiritual living in this world. By our nature, we're 
easily encumbered by the things of this world. We're called as believers to continually cry out to Him for spiritual revival. The purpose and life that comes from the gospel. God considered you valuable enough to send His Son. The constant and steady reality of God's unconditional love is laid out in Scripture in stark contrast to the elusive and fleeting love of a world that says you can be valuable if you'll accomplish these things, if you'll measure up this way. He's saying, I want you to follow me on a narrow path. It's dark out. You're going to need the light. And with my presence serving as your guide, my word serving to be a lamp to your feet, he is going to guide us into what it means to actually walk in fullness. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light that is life. When I was in seminary in Orlando, Florida, at Reformed Theological Seminary, it was an amazing thing that they had night launches from Cape Canaveral, and at least on two occasions, Carolyn and I could walk out into the parking lot of our apartment complex, 60 miles, an hour's drive from Cape Canaveral. And at night, you could see the space shuttle lighting up the horizon. Unbelievable. That far away, that's how much power, that's how much juice is associated with watching something get launched from that part of the coast. Jesus launched our church eight years ago. We live in a dark world. And what our church, metaphorically speaking, is is merely the vehicle through which His light is going to shine. Our our prayer is that, individually speaking, we would let His light guide our steps, that we would know what it means to walk in fullness as we trust Him and find our identity and our fullness in Him. But as a mission, our goal would be that as we live this way, as we love one another, that people would see that we're genuinely his disciples. So eight years, 420 worship services, for those of you who are counting at home. I would pray that God would enable us to to spend the next eight years knowing him in such a way that we would actually see his glory manifest not only in our lives, but in the culture. And that along with the Apostle Paul, we could say to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray.